Welcome to the NTT20 podcast. We're sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, George Ellick. On the agenda today and always, all things EFL, Championship, League One and League Two in our sights. George, how are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you, mate. I'm good. The weekend of EFL action became something of a eunuch due to Storm Eunice. Some of its key fixtures chopped off for various uh, Storm-related issues. We're going to get into what did happen and some managerial news as well. But first, George, I feel like for the last few months we've, we keep sort of quite tediously teasing some vague, exciting news, exciting developments in 2022. One of them, of course, was the EFL 21 Under 21 show that we did with Sky Sports. But we have some more big news. Finally, we can reveal what it is. Very specifically, listener, it's a date for your diaries. Thursday, the 19th of May, 2022, specifically at 7pm for the first time ever, and hopefully not for the last time, Ali and I will be on stage in a theatre. We've rented out a whole theatre for the evening uh, doing our first ever live show. Uh, it's something we've wanted to do for absolutely ages, certainly given the timing. You know, it's a couple of days before the League One playoff final, uh, a week before the League Two and Championship playoff finals. There will be some playoff previews uh, included in there. We'll be looking back over the some pod favourites. It's going to be incredibly fun. It's a Leicester Square Theatre. Thursday, the 19th of May, 2022. We will tweet the link. If you go to the Leicester Square Theatre, you can find, um, you can go buy your tickets on there as well. Uh, this is a big, big moment for us. Maybe if it's successful, we'll be touring the country next year. Um, <laughs> unlikely, but but please come and see us. I laugh time. there because it seems absurd. It seems obscene. And yet any of the stuff that we have done and want to do would have felt that way in, mm. what, the start of 2016 when you said to me, would you like to start a podcast and talk about the EFL? This is the the next step on a, an incredible journey and we're so excited. We want to make sure that it is a really entertaining show. Of course, there will be lots of um, normal pod type stuff, but we want to make it uh, an experience as well for those of you who buy a ticket and come and join us. I'm always just sort of, overwhelmed with with gratitude whenever we talk about big stuff like this because we wouldn't be doing any of this without uh, any of you who've ever listened to the pod really particularly those who have listened for a long time particularly those who are vocal in your support of, of what we do and give us the encouragement to keep going particularly those of you who have helped us you know lobby major broadcasters to give us work and to, to let us try and cover these magnificent leagues as best we can on on the bigger stage but uh, as well um, providing us an audience to make sure that we can attract sponsors that let us do this podcast twice a week as well not the top 20 live 19th of May, 7pm, Leicester Square Theatre. As George said, the link will be in the description of this podcast. It will be tweeted out immediately when this pod goes live. There will be limited tickets. We're not trying to sell out the Stadium of Light. This is more like the new lawn. So make sure if you think you are around and you'd like to come to Not The Top 20 Live on the 19th of May at 7pm at the Leicester Square Theatre, Please make sure you buy a ticket. It would be amazing to see you there. A guest or two we're hoping for. We're not going for guests for guest's sake or big name guests in particular because we want to sell extra tickets. We're just going after popular pod favourites, really, who we think will buy into the evening and add great insight uh, as well as, as us talking nonsense at you as well. I'm interested to know, George, do you, you know what can we expect from you on the night? Do you think the bright lights will bring out a different side to you? A showman, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think this will be my first foreign to stand up. 
as far as I'm <laughs> as far as I see it. So <laughs> you're not going to be able to get a word in edgeways because I've written out my um yeah my 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 spiel for the uh for the for the for the laughs basically. I'm, that's what I'm going in as. Um, you can have the uh, the xG ratio tables printed out in front of you. Mm, that wouldn't be very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're. No, that would be the that would be the opposite, I think, and that's probably more likely. Yes, I, I think so. Well, this is the sort of magical repartee you can expect at not the top <laughs> twenty live. We're going to stop talking to it for a few minutes at least, but it's on the nineteenth of May at seven pm at the Leicester Square Theatre, and you can buy tickets by following the link in the description, the link that we've tweeted, or just heading to the Leicester Square Theatre website. We hope to see you there, and I'm afraid we're going to be talking <laughs> about it quite a lot over the next few weeks until we sell out let's talk efl action from the weekend specifically we're starting in the championship at the bottom of it two big games in terms of the relegation battle took place two big results and two resulting managerial departures as well we'll start with derby one peterborough nil george derby dominated this game both teams had a man sent off colson for peterborough lawrence for derby 25 shots to five five shots on target to none 16 shots inside the box for Derby to two of Peterborough and two expected goals generated for Derby to about 0.2 of Peterborough. A lot of extra stuff to talk about here, but in terms of the game, this was pretty one-way traffic, but Derby left it late to get the winner through Louis Sibley. Yeah, I mean, I'm delighted for Sibley, um, a player who I don't think anyone could have anticipated how quiet a season he'd have had, um, given what he did last season, given how much um, Derby have needed a spark uh, so for him to get the goal, uh, you know, it's kind of a typical Sibley strike, I guess, um, is is a big moment. I mean, this was uh, everything you'd want, really, from a a game between two sides fighting for their lives. Um, you had two, as you mentioned, two red cards fairly early on in the game, um, given when you normally see red cards, plenty of, of yellows except for that. Um, I only saw the Lawrence challenge once, so couldn't really make a call um but certainly Coulson's two yellows both look like pretty obvious yellows um for him to be foolish enough to get but the second time after just being but the first was was pretty stupid like going to ground then um but good to see Fessi Abasele 21 under under 21 um member uh doing what he does so well and, and terrorizing Coulson down that down that right hand side um but yeah Derby I mean when Rooney said it after the game Derby were not only better but they showed a, a clear golf in class between the two sides really um and you know that is the end of darren ferguson's reign mm. as posh manager um sunday evening four- peterborough united statement saying that the co-owners had accepted the resignation of manager darren ferguson following a call made by darren to darren mccantony on sunday remember that darren ferguson was very publicly backed particularly by darren mccantony although he's not the only owner of peterborough united um both publicly and on Instagram, on podcasts that Dara hosts, and also in the form of a long-term contract. In just three months ago, 16th of November, signed a new contract till 2025. So I suppose, in a sense, the only way that Darren Ferguson would be parting ways with Peterborough United would be in in the form of a resignation, I think, because Darren mm. McCantony is a, is a proud man, probably too proud to, to, to go so far against his word. What do you make of, of the move for Peterborough and, and for their sort of survival chances? I mean, it's pretty hard to to say, really. I mean, you've got a guy in, in Ferguson who has proven himself to be the man that Peterborough want when they want to get promoted, um, but maybe isn't the guy to keep them there when they do go up. Um, I've been pretty surprised when you consider how um, Blackpool have taken to 
to um to the step up when you consider even Hull, you know, who who haven't had a great season themselves. There wasn't much between these three sides going up last season and it didn't feel to me like there should be any reason why Peterborough should be the weakest of the three but there's absolutely no question now that they that they have been um and given the position they're in um I guess they have a better chance of appointing of making the right appointment from where they are now being able to still offer the possibility of championship football next season if the, if, the, if the man coming in gets it right do you think um, that you know does it does it need to be an appointment made I know that these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive but first and foremost a, a firefighter type to try and get them to stay in the championship and what that means in terms of, of revenue rather than someone more long term who can help develop the squad it's a very young squad a lot of young players not many of whom are enjoying life in the championship I think it's fair to say almost no one I think in the squad whose stock has risen this season uh, most of them playing their their first season at championship level apart from maybe Norburn in midfield who, who's done very well and attracted interest but it, it, do, do you feel like they will look for uh, a young manager? Do you feel like they'll look for experienced manager? Do you think they will just turn to Grant McCann, <laughs> just like they turned to Darren Ferguson multiple times? Is McCann the obvious option? I think he is. Um, I think Darren McCann seems to be someone who, you know, he has a loyalty. Uh, he was quite vocal on social media about McCann when he left Hull um, and was very complimentary about him and said that he, in his opinion, he would improved as a manager since leaving Posh as well, which would probably make him quite high on their shortlist. And, you know, the working relationship between an owner and a manager is so important that having someone on board who you've already got that with and you a period, you know, you've had some success with uh, is important. The only thing I would say, and I kind of feel like a bit of a broken record talking about this, but you know, if I was making the decisions here, my my shortlist would be two of, of Rob Edwards and James Robbery and seeing if either of them would be interested in making the step up. And Peterborough are, are pretty rare in terms of a club of their stature who are willing to recruit players from lower down the pyramid and are willing to spend money on doing so. I think they they are smart in that they know that um, there is value to be had in recruiting talent from below because they're going to end up here at some stage so you may as well be the person to 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 make that move um so i would hope that that would be the case i don't really necessarily buy into the whole idea of a, of a firefighter yes someone might come in who can have a more immediate and quick impact but i think if you just go out and recruit the best possible manager um then that's the way to go about things and, and by doing that you should be appointing someone who's got the cap you know got the capability and the potential talent to manage at the top level mm. um i suppose so as well firefighter is like a synonym for an older manager who's managed at this level before and, and probably like most older managers will have had some successes and will likely have had some failures and some sackings as well. I actually realise I've kind of fallen into the trap of using it in that sense and I'm not sure I really believe in that necessarily either. I mean, I, I know this is just plucking one example, but you look at Mark Robinson being appointed at, at AFC Wimbledon last season. He was the opposite of your archetypal firefighter, someone who'd never managed a, at senior level before. He was also the perfect manager to take over that squad, that group of players and that club at that time. So it's not always someone basically with, with I don't know, a few survivals to their name and, and 500 games managed under their belt. It's a it's a pretty interesting scenario, uh, I must admit. D Dara has said on his podcast that, you know, he keeps track of young managers just like he keeps track of young players. I mean, his appointment record isn't quite as stark 
and 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 weighted towards young talented managers as it is young talented players in terms of his player recruitment but you know he he seems to have his finger on the pulse on the managerial front across all three leagues and he's clearly got strong views on who he thinks is a good manager or or not and what makes a good manager or not so be interesting to see where he goes um they're in a very very tough situation and they've picked up one point from games against Reading and Derby where they, they needed more. They created next to nothing in, in both games. And Ferguson, well, he suffered really. Tried so many different systems, tried so many different players. It feels like everyone in the squad at some time or other has been in or out of favour this season. And that speaks to how difficult they have found it to, to be consistently performing at this level. Lots of work still to do. Derby on the pitch at the moment, um, leaving the off stuff to one side just for a second. It, it is like a work of fiction, isn't it? Um, I, I don't want to get carried away and pretend that Derby are one of the league's best teams. You know, they'd be 15th without the points deduction. Um, but it's true that because of the situation, the wins that they get, particularly the dramatic ones, get more coverage than the defeats, which generally can be explained away with, um, you know, the thinness of their squad, the fatigue, the situation surrounding the club and the psychological implications of that. But some of the individual moments, you know, the second half against Bournemouth springs to mind on, on, on a Sunday on Sky, that the two-goal comeback against Reading with Curtis Davis equaliser that we watched together and screamed at the TV, the two-goal comeback against Birmingham with Belix overhead kick equaliser and then this one truly madly sibly uh, injury time winner against uh, against posh uh, a game they needed to win and all with this kind of strange thin squad a ton of under 21 kids new one seems to pop up every every game doesn't it um at the, the center back cash in first start clean sheet looked good uh, some old fellas as well Curtis Davis is, is going to be a cult here at Derby forever I think and then a couple of their, their sort of legacy players from the big spending days like Lawrence and Christian Bielek and co and, and all with England's record goal scorer in his first managerial job at the helm it's, it's pretty crazy they've got 14 games to go they're still in the relegation zone George they've gone above Peterborough they've got five points to make up over Paul Ince's Reading what? Mm. Paul sorry does it say is that right Paul Ince is Reading. What? I was about to tell yes. you that Velko Paunovic is Reading, beat Preston 3-2, George, having lost eight in a row. What's going on here? I mean, I, I have no idea. I mean, it, it's not a case of, of sitting here saying it's a bad appointment, even if it's not the one that any of us would have made. It's just where has this come from? Um, is the reason why it took a week or 10 days or two weeks longer than it should have done to, to end Velko Paunovic's reign? Um, because they were sounding out Paul Linson and bringing him in. I mean, what is the whole notion of the reason why they're bringing him in is because they want to, they lack a leader and lack a fighter. So they can't bring in a player to do that. They just go and bring in the governor. Um, I, we'll see. I mean, the, the thing about Paul Lintz is, is that he is someone who, in, in like the very infancy of his managerial career, he looked for a second, like he was going to be something quite special. You know, he went over, took over um, Macclesfield, did an unbelievable job in a very short period of time, did a very similar thing at MK Dons and suddenly kind oh, of earned his... Str- did get promoted, yeah. I think, didn't he, with MK from League yeah. Two, I believe? Um, and suddenly, you know, this is a guy who had two good jobs done at two lower levels who'd earned the right to, to go and take on a job in... Um, was the Rovers job in the Premier League? I think it was. And they and, and then everything kind of disintegrated very, very quickly. Um, you know, the, the Blackburn job did not go well. He went, went back to MK and couldn't really resurrect it. Um, jobs at, you know, Notts County, at Blackpool. Um, 
and very quickly it kind of transpired that maybe he wasn't the um, hot managerial pro- property that that we thought. But there, last there was game, last game he there. managed at Blackpool uh, eight years and one month ago. I mean, that is in itself is 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 kind of the crazy part where. I mean, a, a lot has happened since then, and you have to assume that he, you know, how he's managed to basically get a job off the back of of not uh, managing for eight years is pretty strange. I mean, it is an interim role, we're told. So, you know, there's it's not like they've gone out and recruited him to be the long term manager. I mean, he it's it's a it's a joint management duo, isn't it? It's him and Michael Gilks, who I mean, I don't know a great deal about. I mean, the, the whole thing is pretty strange. It's pretty weird. Um, but remember that the appointment of Paunovic itself was bizarre. I mean, where he, that he came from, um, you know, he wasn't someone with a, a particularly good reputation. He wasn't someone who'd been linked to any, any other jobs over here. Um, whoever's making the, the recruitment decisions in terms of, of managers at Reading uh, certainly does does so in a, in a different way to, to the rest of the field. Absolutely. Who do you think Paul Ince's first name on the team sheet will be here? Tom Ince. I think John Swift, but that's interesting. <laughs> Tom Ince is also part of the squad, as you mentioned. I mean, it was a, it was an amazing day for the travelling fans. Winning at Preston, having had just such a horrendous... It actually wasn't eight defeats in a row, was it? Because they drew in midweek against Peterborough, but wasn't exactly a, a happy affair. You know, they scored an early goal here, which gave Lucas Schrau, the goal scorer, and the whole team confidence. And we know that, that Lucas Schrau mixed with three tablespoons of liquid confidence is some recipe and he showed that with a vintage Schwao goal uh, to put them 2-0 up and then combined beautifully with Swift for th- for the 3-0 goal the sort of goal that, that they were scoring Swift in particular in the opening weeks of the season when they were playing with a bit more uh, confidence a bit more style the, the goal meant that John Swift now has a double-double this season 10 goals 10 assists uh, the first player in well certainly in the Euro top leagues and all of the English divisions top four divisions to get there uh, I know what you're thinking, George. You're thinking, what about Domenico Berardi of Sassuolo, who you Correct. know has 10 and 10 as well. Yeah. But he got his 10th assist yesterday on Sunday at the San Siro against Inter. But Swifty had already got his double-double on Saturday. They did concede two in the second half from Preston, who came roaring back after a, a horrendous first half from their point of view, you have to say, and held on. And I suppose with Ince, the, the hope is that, as you've mentioned, his name, his nickname, the governor, <laughs> his playing career and his sort of strict seeming manner will help you know whip this group into shape give them a rocket get them fighting for everything i i personally don't really buy that that's what's most important in today's championship or rather yeah the most important thing they could look for you know i think of the managers even in the bottom half of the championship now there's a there's the majority of them are good footballing thinkers, are good coaches, are good tacticians, some of them good motivators, some of them a mixture of all three. Uh, I don't necessarily know where Paul Ince uh, measures on those things, but he certainly didn't get a lot of plaudits for his tactics at Blackpool um, in terms of motivation and man management. Again, we have no idea. You know, There's always a, a suggestion that the, the millennial players, the new wave, if you will, don't necessarily respond as well to, to that old school type. So again, uh, remains to be seen. But it's uh, it's an interesting one because, you know, they've got an easier run in the derby, fixtures on paper uh, anyway, and then they've got the five-point gap above them as well. So it's easy to feel, or it's been easy to feel recently, like it's already over, like derby will inevitably climb over Reading and, and survive and Reading will go down. But derby are still the ones with it all to do. Um, Reading are still 
more likely, I would say, to stay up than, than Derby because Derby have, have all the work to do. Um, whether Tom Ince, sorry, whether Paul Ince will be the man <laughs> to turn things around, um, that remains do you reckon, to be seen. Do you, reckon, do you reckon Tom Ince was like called into the, you know, the bosses starting, they're like, any chance you could ask your dad if he fancies uh, coming and helping out? Well, yeah, there's there was lots of chat when uh, when he managed him at Blackpool that he basically was like, the, you know, the the nine other outfield players you know, in football manager terms, their mentality was set to like defend, and then it was just get the ball to Thomas and see what he can do. Um, so you know they've got they've they've certainly got a bit more about them, particularly if Joao wants to be in good form. Um, but yeah, I feel like the fans are pleased to see the back of Paolo because had seen so many poor displays under him and, and his grip loosening and loosening over the last few weeks and months but certainly uncertain about what to expect uh, with Paul Ince and evidently we're kind of feeling the same way um, there was a, a big result uh, towards the top of the division to kick off Saturday Fulham hosted Huddersfield at Craven Cottage and the Terriers won and and bolstered their playoff position and maintained their unbeaten run I think it's 13 in the league 15 in all comps and Certainly based on their first half performance, they, they massively deserved this. They were sharper. They were much more dangerous than Fulham, albeit they didn't have the majority of possession. When they did, they had a clear plan for how to hurt Fulham and it worked. And having gone 2-0 up before half time, they then kind of defended for their lives. They did it pretty well um, and, and a, a very much a deserved three points. Carlos Corbran needs to take a lot of credit here, as he does for, for their whole season, to be honest. Um, basically played a 4-4-2 with Lewis O'Brien up front with Ward and it worked really well both in terms of O'Brien who does the pressing work of like three men uh, which is always going to be a massive boost against a team that build up so well through the back and through midfield um, but but springing in on the break as well you know they did they were quite brave Huddersfield in building up right from the back in order to draw Fulham onto them uh, but that made sure there was kind of space for their forward players when they did get it forward and you know, with fewer opportunities, you need to be right on the money with your attacking play. And they absolutely were, you know, Sorba Thomas, Dwayne Holmes, O'Brien uh, and Ward and Toffolo as well involved in the first goal were all um, really, really on it straight from the first whistle. And it was such an impressive first half performance. I must I must say, I think Lewis O'Brien is some footballer like he, he doesn't have necessarily the pure skill and invention of some of the players that we've loved most over the last five years, like your Grealish and your Eze and your Dan Juma. But what he can do in all aspects of the game um, and at such high speed, high intensity, with and without the ball, I really think he has a very, 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 very exciting future in the game. I think he'll be a Premier League player for the majority of his career. And I feel like when you project up a level, what sort of team can these guys play for and thrive at? O'Brien's one of those where I kind of feel like he's he's almost like system proof. There's a place for someone like him in in any team, in any midfield, whether it's as an eight or a 10 or a six, you can kind of do it all. Um, and I'm sure there'd have been some people watching Sky on Saturday who would have noted that for sure. Uh, and what it means, George, is that a lot of people on Saturday, you, you get a lot of messages on, this, on the NTT20 squad, you see a lot on Twitter... Huddersfield had been that team that everyone was like, yeah, they're doing really well. It's great to see. They are likely to drop out of it. They're just not quite good enough to sustain it. Then you get the headline win and all of a sudden you're massively on the radar and you start seeing the messages like, okay, I think they're going to make it after this. I would suggest this isn't necessarily the game to turn your opinion around, as impressive as it was. For me, it's the next two games, Cardiff and Birmingham, games that they as a team in fifth against teams in 18th and 19th should be expecting to win 
and and impose themselves and impose dominance on those teams. That's for me the big question mark about Huddersfield. Yeah, I think I'd agree. Um, you know, this was a, a huge result for them, and in terms of from now to the end of the season, I think going to Craven Cottage, going two 0 up, and then successfully defending that lead for a long period of time um, will give them massive belief. Um, you know, you think back to when they were promoted. What was it six years ago uh, when they beat Reading in the playoff final? Um, they're in a pretty similar position in the league table now to what they were then. However, I think there was much more belief under that that David Wagner side that they were there on merit than there maybe is now. But that will change. You know, that will change in terms of a fan base who've still criticised Carlos Corbran uh, a fair bit this season. It will change in terms of the players. It will change in terms of Corbran himself. That actually, if they can go and put in that display and win that game in that way. Um, then there's no one to fear when it comes to the playoffs. And, and if there are, is going to be a slip up in second, maybe they could be the ones to to jump in. I, I still personally would be a bit cautious. Um, again, it, it's similar to the, I think they ended up with a negative goal difference, didn't they, when they yeah. in the season? First team ever to get into the playoffs with a negative goal difference. They're, they're still a side who, for me, um, you know, their wins are marginal and that, means that if you know they, they probably are gonna you look at what's happened with Blackburn recently look what happens with QPR recently you know these teams towards the top end go through poor runs and I think Huddersfield are probably due one at some point um but it's, I mean that was I think you're making exactly the point that I had in yeah. my head which is that yeah the way that they are for me still makes it uh unlikely that they will make the playoffs but the way that they are and how well they they are coached and how well Corbran can set them up particularly uh in a specific game for a specific op- opponent would be a like a bonus would be a tick in the box heading into the playoffs if they do make it because they're so well coached and they're so calm and controlled in what they're doing and, and that all comes from the manager Corbran's stock continues to grow and it's great to see for Fulham this kind of felt for me anyway, like one of those days and no more than that and no more worrying than that. There's a bit of, uh, you know, in the Fulham fan base, there's a bit of like, oh, are we, have we been playing that well recently? Maybe not. Is this, is this indicative of a, a drop in performance level? Possibly, but I'm, I'm just not that concerned. You know, the, the penalty decision is a big one to, to put Huddersfield 2-0 up. I didn't think it was a horrendous decision. Had it not been given, I wouldn't have thought that was a horrendous decision either, if you know what I mean. Um, and it was a great take from Bobby Reed, An underrated goal, I think. Three perfect touches. Firstly, to control the, an errant shot and kill it dead. The second, to shift it into his shooting motion. And then the third, to smash it into the corner with his weaker foot. I'm, I'm not too concerned for Fulham. Uh, what about the form team in the league? Potentially, Sheffield United beating Swansea 4-0. This was about as comfortable as it comes. Swans, six shots, none of them anywhere near Blades' penalty box. And it means that, George, that, that since Paul Heckingbottom was appointed, and remember it was a controversial change getting rid of Slav and bringing Heckingbottom straight in. 12 games, eight wins, three draws, one defeat. 27 points from 12 games. That's the most in the division in that time. Yeah, and when, when you look at Morgan Gibbs-White playing like this... Um, you know, keeping him fit and in this kind of form for the rest of the season, you know, he was, he was very good early on in the campaign and had, had his fitness issues um, and showing Swansea fans what they missed when they had him on loan. Um, but he wasn't able to make as much of an impact after being recalled. Um, you know, Sheffield United look to me to be a side who are just have, you know, they have a very good squad. They have very good players and those players are now playing well. Um, whether that's down to Heckingbottom, you know, we have to give them credit because, before uh, he was in, when it, when it was Slab that was in, they were nowhere near the level that they're operating at now. So um, 
Swansea aside who you've got to be pretty concerned about at the moment. Um, apart from the, the second half performance against Bristol City where they were 1-0 down and won that game 3-1. Um, they've been really, really poor in recent weeks and are losing 3-0 at uh, Stoke as well. Um, their last three away performances have been a 2-0 loss at Hull, a 3-0 loss at Stoke and then a 4-0 loss at Sheffield United. They're, they're basically not a functioning football team on the road at the moment. Um, it's not going to matter. Um, you know, we've seen Russell Martin talking about the process. And then interesting to note as well that Luke Williams, who is, well, was Martin's uh, assistant at MK Dons. I followed him um, to Swansea as well. Uh, he's now leaving the club, which is a bit of a surprise. It seems like it's personal reasons, wanting to be near his family rather than anything football related. But I know certainly at MK Dons, a lot of people were quite close to it. Um, whilst agreeing that Russell Martin was definitely someone who went about his job in the right way. It was Williams's philosophy that had a massive part in terms of what the, the style of football and what they're trying to implement as well at Swansea. So you know, we, we talk so often on the pod about how crucial, you know, how often relationships between managers and assistants um, can be very important. That's overlooked. Certainly look at Wilder and Nil as being an example of that. So it'll be interesting to see how Russell Martin gets on for the first time in his managerial career so far without Williams by his side um, because things at the moment are not good. But you are right with, with Blades now. It kind of feels like the cream rising to the top, doesn't it? After a disappointing start, it's, it's very, very hard to see them outside the, the six now. And again, are they probably the team best placed now given the poor form of, of sides around them? You know, we've seen QPR drop off, Blackburn drop off. Uh, they are eight points behind Bournemouth, um, which is clearly a big gap. But we have, you know, we know that Bournemouth are going to have to really stutter from here in order to let other teams in. Uh, and I reckon it'll be Blades who could be the ones to pick up the pieces if that does happen. You mentioned Morgan Gibbs-White. Sensational performance, showed his full array of talents, showed why we just love watching him. He is immaculate. He does everything at high speed. Two goals, a nice assist as well. Very surprised that you haven't mentioned George Bulldog's goal. For two reasons. Firstly, because you only like goals that are a bit different and this one certainly was that not only mainly and secondly because you love gorgeous george and i love the celebration as well <laughs> uh yeah it's an amazing goal what was quite funny is that you texted me saying what a goal bulldog and obviously given oxford's striker sam bulldog was playing up front for us i celebrated in the pub gave it the big one went onto twitter and the first thing it said was matty taylor and i was like oh he's just he's just got the wrong player there Turns out they just scored at exactly the same time, which is lucky for you because otherwise I was going to come back and find you. Sam Bulldog got his goal later. This one was, if yeah. you haven't seen it, head to the Quest TV Twitter account because Bulldog's goal with a little little Decanio-esque little sort of scissors type motion before smashing it in off the bar as well. Perfect. And for Blades, you know, they, they were frustrated to draw against Hull in midweek. It looks a bit different now when you see them dominate Swansea and win comfortably because you look back at that Hull game, you think actually, yes, on balance of play, we did dominate that game again. He was keen to make the point, Heckingbottom, that you know against Swansea, they're going to give you opportunities because they're quite ambitious in how they play, whereas Hull basically sat in a low block and tried to play for a nil-nil. And, and they're, you know you have to try and win both ways and Blades failed in, in, in doing the, the harder one. And that's something they might need to look at. But Basically, if you look at the underlying numbers, you're looking at about an eight-game stretch now where Blades have been clearly the better side in, in pretty much every game, and that's quite uh, exciting. I think Heckenbottom's rotating his squad really well. Um, they've basically got a good, solid group of like 18, 19 players. Almost all of them are getting a fair amount of game time, 
and slotting in and out really well. You've got basically five centre-backs for three slots, two wing-backs for each side, although Stevens and Bogle are out at the moment. You've got four centre-mids for the, for the two or three pivot roles, Norwood, Fleck, Harahan and Berger. And they've been flipping them in and out all the time, keeping them fresh. And then Gibbs-White and Jai, Sharp, McBurney and Jebison, who's not getting many minutes, but is getting a lot of bench time at the moment for those sort of attacking slots as well. So doing a really good job so far, uh, Paul Heckingbottom, that is for sure. As is Nathan Jones. Luton beat West Brom 2-0 here, uh, Kenilworth Road. Uh, in doing so, they went above West Brom, which felt significant. And not for the first time this season, they've picked up a big win and look pretty well positioned. Uh, they they basically gave West Brom a sort of 45-minute period of, of grace where, with a mixture of quite poor passing out from the back, um, some quite shoddy defending, they, they gave West Brom a lot of good opportunities. And I say specifically they gave them to them because West Brom weren't really doing anything special to get those opportunities necessarily, apart from, uh, you know, uh, pressing a little. Um, but West Brom missed all of those chances. And commentator Paul Walker on the Quest highlights said something like, you have to wonder uh, if, w- w- will West Bromwich Albion ever score? And it felt quite apt. And I have felt like that quite a lot this season. But unfortunately, Luton were never going to play like that for the whole game. And in the second half, they got a grip on things. They got a deserved win in the end. That they're, they're very, very comfortable playing games at home. And they got the win. Alan Campbell, the star man for them in midfield, getting rave reviews on the Sunday scouting reports from Baggies fans, who I think... Uh, particularly were, were, were missing that sort of player in their midfield. Not enough bite, not enough intensity, not enough quality, not enough goal threat in their midfield at the moment. Alan Campbell showing all of those things. You know, Luton signed him and we're always going to bang on about Luton's recruitment because it's been so good over the last few years and they end up with a championship squad with strength and depth um, in all areas of the pitch that's been recruited to play a certain style of play uh, and has do- has been done on, on, a, on a budget uh, and without spending lots of money and without being funded by a sugar daddy. So uh, Alan Campbell is, is just another example of that, you know, picked up from Motherwell. They had to be quite creative. I didn't realise this until uh, this weekend, but his contract was up with Motherwell at the end of last season. They were so keen to make sure he went to Luton that they actually paid an undisclosed fee for him um, in order to basically get in front of him being a free transfer and everyone else getting on top of him over the summer. So I don't know the, the full details, but that certainly caught my eye. And, and on the announcement as well, it says on the club website, this transfer was made possible by the Transfer Club Fund raised by supporters who paid the full amount for their season ticket, donating the equivalent of 40% credit to the club. Again, that makes it quite confusing to work out exactly what's happened there. But again, another nice wrinkle to this signing, the fans getting basically some credit for paying for Alan Campbell uh, and he's been sensational uh, recently. As I mentioned at the top here, George, it feels like there's been a few occasions this season where Luton have picked up a win, jumped up a few places and suddenly looked on the cusp of the playoffs and then maybe they've picked up a couple of disappointing results. Where do you think they're at right now? That They are literally two points off it, the playoffs. I think they've won seven of their last 11. Um, they're an interesting side, aren't they? Because they've got plenty to like, plenty of threats Sometimes it just feels like they're they're just one gear away. I don't know what you feel. I think what Nathan Jones said was right, where it feels like they're now at a stage where they, unless they're playing Birmingham, they're going to give any team they they play against a very difficult time of it. Um, you know, they've lost eight 0 in aggregate over two games against Birmingham, but except for that, they are consistently competitive. You feel like they've always got enough in their armory to, to hurt teams. I think they're probably going to fall a little bit short when you think of the teams around them or the teams who currently occupy those places. But then you've 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 now got Middlesbrough, Forest, Coventry, and Baggies 
all of which aren't in the top six. I'm pretty confident in saying that I think at least, I mean, at least one, probably two of those will end up getting into the into the top six. Baggy's clearly being the, the least likely at the moment, although there was a lot to like, I thought. You know, you kind of mentioned it there. They, you know, they had certainly had the chances to to go ahead in the game. Um, this wasn't a, a loot and a shutout by any stretch. Um, just for whatever reason, they are. I'm struggling to think of a side who've felt to me to be more cursed than in a campaign than, than Baggy's this season, where pretty much from the first ball kicked this season, they have consistently been just incapable of putting the ball in the back of the net to an extent that it's about way more than just poor finishing. You know, Andy Carroll, his header, they hit the bar, was a decent effort. I loved his pace that I didn't really think he still had when he nicked the ball off. I think it was Lockyer um, for a chance early on at nil-nil as well. Um, eventually, these are going to start going in and, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if um, quite soon we're talking about you know, well done, Steve Bruce, for turning this Baggies team around. Whether it'll be him or it'll just be the fact that you're, you're going to, you know, that these uh, marginal misses are going to start going in at some point. Um, we'll, we'll see at that time. It's three wins in 16 for Baggies. They're down in 11th place now. As you can imagine, there's some real existential issues going through the fan base and on West Brom Twitter. Um, a, a lot of discussion over the weekend. You know, after after you make the change that you've been clamouring for and the new manager hasn't yet made any difference whatsoever suddenly you have to look elsewhere and so now you're getting the conversations more about the fact this has been coming for years this has been you know poor decision making at the club for for years and years now when they had opportunities to to sort of establish themselves in the premier league and they didn't make the most of it and and coming down from the premier league not making the most of their parachute payments as well uh, there's a lot of talk about this squad being terrible and the worst squad they've had for a long time, and I, you know you can understand all of that, all of that fan sentiment at this point. It's the lowest ebb for a long time. I couldn't believe it when I went on the Wikipedia page West Bromwich Albion seasons, George, and I realised that West Brom haven't finished lower than the second tier playoffs, so Championship playoffs, since mm. 99-2000. They've never wow. finished lower than the top six in the second tier. So you can see why 22 years on from that, being 11th place right now with a couple of months of the season yet would cause a fair amount of consternation. I wonder what Val Ishmael is thinking uh, watching all of this. Two more games in the champ to chat about. Bristol City 2, Borough 1, George, or Coventry 1, Barnsley 0. Going to give you a choice of what to go with first here. Um, let's go for Cov 1, Barnsley 0. Um, a nice dramatic injury time goal from Dom Hyam giving Coventry a, a pretty deserved win uh, significant for a couple of reasons you know even though home to Barnsley should be uh, a game that that Coventry do win um, and even though a 1-0 scoreline doesn't necessarily point at massive over achievement but they were better um, you know they, have, they haven't been playing too well in recent weeks I thought they were way better here um, they went back to a two up top which we haven't seen them do for about uh, two months um, normally when um, Matty Godden, pre-Matty Godden appendicitis, it was often Gyokoresh and uh, Godden up front together as a two at home. And then away from home, they'd drop one of them and play the two tens in behind. Since Godden's uh, injury, it's been just consistently the two tens in behind until now. Robin's deciding to bring Waghorn back in. And the change of shape gave them something a bit different. Uh, Matson back on, on the left-hand side. Uh, Jake Bidwell's arrival at the club um, has coincided, no more than that, I think, with a bit of a dip in Informed. So this was kind of a throwback, I guess, to where um, Coventry were well, more similar to the team that they were playing uh, when things were going better for them this season. Um, it was a decent finish from Hyam as well. 
um, taken very well, uh, very late on for a, a centre back. And you know, Barnsley were fairly poor, but this is a difficult game going away from home. You know, Barnsley's key for for the rest of the season is going to be whether they can continue to pick up points at home, um, as the win against QPR last midweek showed. So, um, and Gustavo Harmer back after suspension two uh, from now on for Coventry. So they'll be hoping to use this performance just to kind of, I don't know, rinse off the um, the little dip in, in performances and form uh, and use this as a, an opportunity to go and try and, you know, ensure that they're going to be in the mix come the end, of the, the end of the season for that playoff spot. Yeah, you mentioned home to bottom of the table. On paper, looks like an easy fixture. And Mark Robbins, like yourself, was keen to point out that, that this was anything but. Uh, in fact, he... he the way he spoke about Barnsley after this game was like they were sort of Brazil 1970. He was like, they've got some incredibly talented players. You know, Keener's unbelievable. Callum Styles. He was waxing lyrical about Callum Styles. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I think Styles might be aiming higher with all due respect to Coventry. But if Barnsley do get relegated, I'm pretty confident Robbins is going to be in for him because he absolutely loves him. Claudio Gomez in midfield got a name check as well for being a, you know, a brilliant player. So he was very chuffed that they got over the line. Uh, he did mention that he basically reckons it's the Southampton FA Cup game, which is now a good few weeks ago that they've just been absolutely exhausted ever since then, which, you know, looking at the amount of games they've had to play is, is not too surprising. So maybe they can catch their breath this week. And Bristol City beat Middlesbrough. Big, big win. Significant for a few reasons, really. Uh, it was the, the 40th anniversary of the Ashton Gate 8. You know, I talk about Derby County's uh, on-pitch on and off-pitch stuff being, being more like something out of fiction this season. Well, the story of the Ashton Gate 8, if you don't know it, now, that really is um, something almost fictional. These were eight Bristol City players who 40 years ago selflessly tore up their contracts to save the club from financial ruin. There's a lot more to the story and there are some great pieces written about it. And if it sounds like the sort of thing you'd be interested in reading about, then I, I would employ you to do so because it's it's one of those amazing footballing stories that's, that's kind of hard to get your head around. But they were honoured uh, at Ashton Gate on Saturday, 40 years after it happened, and they were given a, a proper, proper, proper um, ovation, which is great to see. And the Bristol City back line, perhaps inspired by this, unlike recent times, they stayed strong when under pressure, just like the Ashton Gate 8. And uh, and they held off. They held this borough side off who had, you know, who, who did have more of the ball, who did have more of the territory, who did have probably more of the opportunities. But in Vyman and Semenyo, we have... Two players in particular who have been so important for Bristol City in the last few, well, in the last two months in particular. A Bristol City side that's been so poor at defending and they have had a bad record in this time. But thanks to those two, I mean, it could have been so much worse if they were blunt going forward as well as terrible defensively. These two are just on another level at the moment. Semenyo shrugging off a, a defender, cutting it back for Vyman, whose finishing is always seemingly sensational. And then Vyman, uh, Semenyo in the second half, 21 under 21 legend, sort of juggling a ball 25 yards out and then a low left-footed drive into the corner. The power which, which he generates with both feet is just brilliant. That's his weaker left foot and he's just firing it into the bottom corner from 20 yards. Um, fantastic stuff. And, and as I say... This back line, which everyone has been criticising, including the manager, um, stayed strong and, and Pearson was really happy with the mentality there. Wilder, after this one, to be fair, was was pretty sanguine, was fairly phlegmatic. He was kind of like, well, the truth is, you know, we, we were fairly dominant. We we're just pretty shoddy in, in, in the final third uh, and that's why we lost this game. But he did make the point, which I thought was quite interesting and very fair, where he was kind of like, but this, but this team is losing matches 
playing in this sort of dominant way is something new. This was not this was not how Middlesbrough were playing in defeat even four months ago, uh, and that's significant. I think that's probably a fair point. So uh, a big three points for Bristol City, a great day at Ashton Gate, that one. They've got Cov, don't they, actually, this midweek? So no rest for Coventry. They're going to have to go to a, a Boyd Bristol City. Uh, should be a good game, that one. Make sure you buy tickets to our live show, guys, before we move to uh, the League One segment. Just going to drop that one in there. Uh, you can find the link everywhere, as discussed at the top, not the top 20, live, 19th of May, 7pm Leicester Square Theatre. In League One, normally we don't talk about draws, but we are going to start with one, because when there's a five all, and it's our second of the season, we had Forest Green five, Oldham five, didn't we? Or other way around, Oldham five, Forest Green five. Now it's Wickham five, Cheltenham five. Bonkers. Bonkers. One of those games where you really needed a score, like a score bug at the top of the quest highlights. Because no one knew what the score was did <laughs> until the end. No. Well, although the, the voiceover man did well to um, to uh, keep us up to date with that. Yeah, crazy game. And, you know, Wickham's recent defensive frailties are, are, are pretty strange. Um, you know, we've seen them concede three against... Uh, against Morecambe and then five here against against Cheltenham, it doesn't feel like they are the solid Gareth Ainsworth side that when you know when when Ainsworth Wickham are at their best, they are a team who who tend, to, especially at this level, to be pretty solid. Um, Alfie May put in an, an amazing performance up front for for Cheltenham, getting four goals. Uh, Kian Atete's goal as well was uh, a lovely strike and good news for those uh, who who followed me in on the, on the betting show. Um, just absolute carnage, and it's funny because I, I think before this season. If I'd have had to pick a, a, a League One game that would be the least likely likely to finish five all, it probably would have been one between a Mike Duff side and a Gareth Ainsworth side. But um, but this isn't you know Cheltenham this season have been slightly more entertaining, um, you know free flowing or free scoring uh, at both ends, and for Wickham to to squander um, the amount of leads as they did here, you know having gone uh, having won one by and then going three three one up and then five three up to only take a point is very poor. Well. I mean, it's it'd be disappointing for them rather than necessarily very poor. But for, yeah, four goals in five minutes, I think it was was uh, was pretty fun. It's a bit of a weird one at Wickham at the moment. I can't understand why they are conceding as many goals as they are. Why they look as sloppy as they do in defence and as easy to to basically play through and get good shots shots off against. It feels very out of character. Uh, I know the fans. It's always going to happen after you've conceded five at home, but. You know, understandably, kind of scratching their head at the fact that Anthony Stewart, who's been a great centre back for Wickham in League One, who's been a good centre back for Wickham in the Championship, is just sitting on the bench unused here. Um, when there's a back three of Grimmer, normally a right back, Jacobson, more or less a left back, and, and Chris Farino, the youngster, at the heart of it, I can understand why that would be a bit of a head scratcher. And Tafazoli seems to be out of favour as well. A lot of Wickham fans saying that's basically our two strongest centre-backs in terms of defending. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard for Ainsworth to justify that when they're conceding these goals. Now, we should say they're up against, you know, the form striker in, in English football right now. Alfie May already had four in his last three. He's now got eight in four. Uh, the first player to score four goals for Cheltenham Town in a football league match. He'd never scored more than eight in a whole, in a whole season in the EFL. He's now got 15 an unbelievable few weeks for May. And, I mean, the the industry that he shows in chasing the ball anywhere on the pitch, the stamina that he shows is sensational. And some of the goals he's scoring are brilliant as well. I mean, his third goal here, I'd be quite disappointed if it's not on the goal of the season list at the end of the season. It, it reminded me a lot of that incredible Simon Cox goal 
for Swindon uh, all those years ago, where Callum Wright basically just pumps a clearance up in the air, like 70 yards up in the air. Bear in mind, we're in the middle of a storm as well. May runs onto it and plucks it down over his right shoulder. His first touch is unbelievable, velvet touch. And then it just pops up nicely, and it's a little no-backlift volley um, over the over the head of the goalkeeper into the net. The whole thing unbelievably slick and high quality. Uh, I tweeted Tom Tom Hancock, who's a, who's a Wickham fan, and said, like, you know, I know these days we don't like to give credit, we don't like to clap the opposition, but was was that one where you're almost having to applaud the opposition goal? And he was like, yeah, I think there was a bit actually. So did you just? I know we've already just discussed the game, but did you notice that the how many people clapped after Campbell's goal for Luton? No, behind there, which was quite surprising i guess yeah. definitely baggies fans just like a group of kind of 10 of them just immediately started clapping i was like well done maybe, <laughs> maybe i'm not giving the match going fans enough credit maybe there's yeah. a, maybe there's a lot more appreciation for high quality football than from the opposition than i'd realized um crazy game there were 10 goals there were only five goal scorers braces for a beater invokes four for alfie may at one point there were four goals in six minutes Wickham had six shots on target and scored five. Uh, it was crazy. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, another draw we're not going to go in depth on, but it was first v second on Friday night. Rotherham won, Wigan won. A, a frantic, tense game. Great atmosphere. Uh, not a huge amount of quality on the pitch, um, but two banging goals, you have to say. One from some, from Humphreys and one from Rathbone. And I suspect a point that both teams are, are pretty helpful with. It just kind of maintains the, the six-point gap, the two games in hand for Wigan. Um, both teams will be... I think feeling confident with their situations. Wigan will be loving the fact that they can put the pressure on Cheltenham. Cheltenham will be happy that they've got the points. Uh, and then it was third versus fourth on Saturday, George. And it was Sunderland against MK Dons. And you'd uh, you'd made your, your thoughts pretty clear on this one, picking MK Dons to win on the betting show, which they duly did. Uh, two breakaway goals. The winner scored by former Sunderland player Connor Wickham, who scored 11 Premier League goals for them when he was a youngster, when Sunderland were in the Prem scoring winning goals against them years later in League One uh, and adding to the poor feeling. But I feel like we should start with MK Dons here because what they're putting together is is something pretty special at the moment. Yeah, it really is. Um, especially last, you know, when you consider last Thursday, I watched Celtic against Bodo Glimt and Matt O'Reilly was um, pretty comfortably the best footballer on the pitch uh, in, a, in a European game. Uh, that's what MK Dons have 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 lost in January, effectively. You had a, a midfield duo of, uh, of Coventry and McEachern here, which is very different to what uh, would have been MK Dons' strongest midfield duo uh, to start the season. But they are still performing at a very high level. Um, I think Moisa being back amongst the goals is important. Scott Twine has understandably gone through a bit of a dip himself, but he sets some very high standards there. Um, as I mentioned in the betting show, I, I, I still think that... Uh, MK are going to struggle at home because their pitch is, is a bog. Um, it was by no means a, a a great surface at the Stadium of Light, but it was good enough for them to to play what they wanted. I mean, it wasn't, you know, this wasn't like a, a dominant win from MK by any stretch. It was a game of fairly few chances where MK Dons were, were, were leading for the most part. So saw out the game pretty well, only conceding eight shots um, to Sunderland when you're when you're ahead for for kind of decent periods is is in itself impressive. Alex Neal will be. Looking forward to um, basically having some easier games at some point. They've got Burton at home in midweek before the pretty difficult trip to Wigan. Um, and the issue for Neil is that he just doesn't have time to kind of get his feet under the table now because they need to start picking up points and quickly. Um, otherwise, we're going to see something pretty similar to what we've seen at, at West Brom, where they're going to 
turn around one day and they're going to be eighth, ninth, tenth um, if they don't arrest the slide pretty quickly. Um, but I thought that was yeah a, a, a enough to be a little bit more positive if you're a Sunderland fan. Um, but for MK, that is a, a big, big win. And, and it does feel like they are now the team who, you know, are they... Well, I think Sheffield Wednesday is still more likely, but they're the team who, at least to get the current table at the moment, will feel like they've got the best chance of of um, of catching the top two. Mm. 4-0 to Oxford, winners at the Valley against Charlton. Just uh, one of those games that you head to probably as an away fan, you think it, it's going to be a really tight game and, and almost immediately your team are just massively on it. The opposition are massively not on it uh, and you, you blitz them with four good goals and just have an amazing few hours watching your team it in the end was an incredibly sad day George for for any Oxford fan and and for the club itself uh the the death of Joey Beecham for you and for just a massive portion of Oxford United fans Joey Beecham was was the one right was the was your footballing idol yeah um yeah it could be quite tricky (laughs) um unbelievably sad you know when the news kind of filtered through on on Saturday evening uh a player who you know, all clubs have these players who embody much more than just being um, a footballer. He was someone who we watched as an Oxford fan um, making all of our dreams come true, which is putting on an Oxford shirt and and being the, the boyhood, you know, the, the boyhood um, local legend who comes good for his club. And for whatever reason, Joey was much better than Oxford in terms of his playing ability. Uh, there's no way he should have played with us for, for the time that he did. Um, he managed to save the club when he was sold to West Ham uh, at a time where Oxford were about to go bankrupt. He um, he then you know wasn't gone for too long because he was homesick. He didn't realise how far away West Ham was from from Oxfordshire. Uh, he played very briefly for our rivals in Swindon before coming home um, in what was a, a bit of a fairy tale return. He's someone who I grew up watching, um, and you know I feel like anyone of my generation who was lucky enough to grow up watching Joey Beach and playing for Oxford, it made it very easy to support them because you had a guy who you knew was well, always going to be the best player on any pitch he set foot on. He scored incredible goals. And it's just incredibly sad that this has happened. I just feel like if he could see the outpouring of, of love and emotion and desperation from Oxford fans and, and plenty of other football fans as well, maybe things could have been different. And that makes me incredibly sad because he was, he was loved by, by a lot of people and, you know, walking down the street in in Bristol on Saturday when the news came through, um, <laughs> had to take myself off for a second because it was it's earth-shatteringly bad news. Um, and all I, you know, the only thing to say is, whenever something this tragic happens, is that if if you're in a position where you feel uh, like things are getting too much, then please just speak to someone, whether it's a friend, whether it's calling Samaritans, whether I mean whatever you do, this stuff is too tragic, and and there are people out there who care. Uh, incredibly sad news on on Saturday. Um, on the pitch, great performance. I think one of the nice stories of the day was the fact that George Bulldog scored that beautiful goal for Sheffield United. His brother Sam Bulldog scored his first goal for Oxford United. Um, I think I'm right in saying these guys grew up in and around Oxford, were Oxford United fans yeah. as kids, and their brother James Bulldog is the club doctor as well. So it really is a kind of it's it's a it's a really nice touch, isn't it? It's a nice family affair, and I reckon we should go and get George Bulldog back on loan just to keep them all there. That'd be quite handy. I bet you. Do. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, and, and it's a, you know it's a big win in terms of the season so far. It's off the back of a couple of disappointing um, results, the three-two loss against Bolton, 
uh, a bit of a dent. You know, it, it feels like we're at the, at the stage of the season now where those teams who are currently occupying a top six spot um, are, are a good run away from really cementing their place in those positions. And that's what has to be the aim now. Um, so to go to a Charleston side who, you know, under under Jacko haven't been put in many performances as poor as that one. Uh, I think you've got to give Oxford credit for turning up and just having the quality, you know, some unbelievable goals. Cameron Brannigan's goal was um, a, a worldie from distance. Uh, Bulldogs finish itself was very good. You know, a lot, a lot to be positive about. And as I kind of joked, um, set, Oxford setting up in a three-five-two, um, showing a bit of a tactical flexibility that the Charlton fans will say they didn't see um, when Carl Robinson was their manager. I'm sure he would have loved going back to the Valley and leaving as a 4-0 winner. Charlton fans less so. Some really poor performances recently. They're in that they're in that position right now, which you, you get quite often in the EFL, where 15 games to go, whatever it is, that there's no expectation of, of anything happening, either in a positive or negative note in terms of getting dragged into a relegation battle. Uh, but there is uh, a real lack of excitement around the team's performances. There's a lack of excitement about what the squad uh, has to offer and therefore a bit of an uncertainty about the future. Um, and, you know, there's not too many fingers being pointed at Johnny Jackson uh, at this point. From what I've seen, it's more like, you know, are we confident that the current ownership structure and the and the way that uh, Thomas Sangar wants to run the club is going to be for the best of us, you know, basically getting our stuff together pulling our socks up, putting together a good summer transfer window and challenging at the top of this division next year, which is what the Charlton fans and most people expect them to do. Um, it's, yeah, and, and yet there's still 15, 16 games to go and, and that's a tough period to be in because, you know, the, the general feeling is like we just got to get through it, get to the summer and then we can start making changes and looking up. But it's three-month period still of having to go to games or not, as the case may be. And this just general malaise kind of floating around the club. So you'd have to hope that the that the team can start putting a few more performances together on the pitch to make sure the end of the season isn't, you know, a bit of a damp squib. Um, but not a good performance, that's for sure, against against Oxford, as good as Oxford were. Bolton also won 4-0, this one against Wimbledon. Um, Don's fans rightly pointing to the fact that they're missing Asal and McCormick with suspensions, Radoni, Hartigan and Woodyard injured. So that's basically all of their goal scorers and creators out for this game uh, and they didn't create or score uh, in fact this was kind of attack versus defense um, Bolton able to, to rack up the score really and continue their um, confidence streak I guess important for them because they chucked in a horrendous performance against Burton losing in midweek a lot of disappointed Wanderers fans after that uh, it was kind of uncharacteristic performance not able to defend their box from set pieces and this is a good response to it you know, confidence is high at the moment. You can see that in their attacking players. Four attackers, all scoring for Bolton. Bodvarsson, uh, Afalayan, uh, Dion Charles and Bakayoko. It's 14 goals between Afalayan, Charles and Bakayoko in the last six weeks or so. And it gives Ian Everett a ton of good options at the top end of the, the sort of 3-5-2. In fact, he's rotating his squad quite, pretty well in general at the moment, which seems to be a feature of a lot of teams who are doing quite well. You could probably say the same for Argyle, George. You know, they've won four in a row. Four of the bottom seven, for sure, but you still have to do the work. And they beat Jills, who have got a little boost recently under Neil Harris. 2-0 here. Fairly comfortable. Uh, Jordan Garrick scoring, Luke Jeffcott scoring. They're another team with essentially four strikers playing two up front and getting rotated, all of them getting a fair amount of minutes and all of them scoring at a pretty pretty decent lick. Hardy, Jeffcott, Garrick and Ennis. Uh, it's a really exciting time to be an Argyle fan. And I bet there's a, 
there's probably a bit of chippiness and a bit of bullishness, and rightly so, at this idea that, that Argyle were going to just fade away, fall away uh, once Ryan Lowe left and Stephen Schumacher took charge. Um, as I say, the four wins have been against bottom seven teams. There's more work still to be done. But they've got six of their next eight games at home. And if they can turn home park into a bit of a fortress, and if the weather is still bad and teams are travelling a long way and there's fatigue setting in, busy schedules, you'd, you know, you'd back your team to win the majority of their home games and they're playing the majority of their games at home. So I, I think there's probably a bullishness about Argyle at the moment. They're probably thinking... That, I think they're the classic, like... We're a bit under the radar here. Let's stay there. <laughs> but also make sure you talk about us because we're doing really well. <laughs> but yeah, and, and, and I think the key thing here is we always talk about how, how a well-run club they are. And often when you lose such a key figure as the manager, um, things can can unravel pretty quickly. And especially given that when Steven Schumacher came in, um, the early form in terms of, of results wasn't great. But no one panicked, um, and we are now seeing the fruits of that labour. And they, you know, they, they don't strike me as as any as in any worse side than they were under under Low either. So um, fruity, fruity labour. Hmm. Yes. Do you want to tell me about Donny one Sheffield Wednesday three? Yeah. Okay. Um, Donny, they went one nil up, um, and very nearly went two nil up when Olo missed a, a pretty easy chance to to put them two nil up, and then a second half performance from Wednesday that just blew them away um where Barry Bannon's it seemed in a he seemed very uh excited about this one um in for all for all three goals his celebrations were um exuberant um and he missed a, a penalty as well which was which was saved um but they were they were very good Wednesday I mean McSheffrey will be frustrated it's it's in, in Doncaster's position when you have the opportunity especially against a side who are flying like Wednesday to go two 0 up, um, you're going to get punished when you don't, basically. Um, but for for Darren Moore, you know he made substitutions that worked at half time. Brought on Patterson and Berahino. First goal scored by Patterson, second goal scored by by Berahino, and then a lovely um, finish for Bannon for the third one. Um, so, yeah, frustration for for Doncaster for sure. But but Wednesday will still feel, uh, and I still think that they are just a side who it's taken them a, a while to work out um, to work this season out. Um, but definitely Darren Moore feels to me like he's he's getting a really good tune out of this side and, and plenty more players to come back from injury as well. Shout out iconic NTT20 squad member and Wednesday fan Peter Lohman, the stats man, who was pretty excited about this one in particular because it's the first time Wednesday had won away from home, having conceded the first goal since February 2016. 59 what? times in that period they had conceded oh first my God. and failed to come back and win. Uh, it was also Berahino's first goal for five months. Uh, a happy day indeed. Ipswich had a good one as well, beating Burton 3-0, taking the lead in the first minute uh, and winning comfortably. Uh, it means that 10 games now for Kieran McKenna at Ipswich, seven clean sheets in 10 games, 22 points. I was due to be talking about Kieran McKenna and a handful of other young managers in League 1 and 2 uh, on Sky on Friday night, but because the game between Bournemouth and Forest got canned um uh, we didn't make it on so that'll be uh, kept for another week but it did mean i did quite a lot of uh, research on mckenna and others and yeah the, def- the defensive shape the the lack of chances that ipswich are allowing their opposition speaks to kind of what we'd been told about mckenna that he was you know incredibly talented at coaching coaching drills and really understands the tactical side of the game, like a lot of the the younger managers that come through at the moment seem to be, you know, weighted towards that side of things. Um, of course, Ipswich do have a very strong team, but they were 
pretty soft uh, under Paul Cook, and they're absolutely not now. Uh, and and that's a very, very, very good points return. And I think some of the Ipswich fans are wondering how they've not moved up more places after getting 22 points from 10 games. But uh, it bodes pretty well. What I wanted to see more of was was chance creation, attacking, uh, breaking down set defences. And this is a tough one to judge because although they did score three goals here, again, Jackson scoring so early, it kind of skews the, the game a little bit. It makes it hard to judge it entirely. Um, but I would say a very, very good piece of man management by McKenna with Caden Jackson who hasn't really been fancied throughout his time at Ipswich since signing from Accrington. Very specifically, is a very, very fast attacking player and someone who, I think, inspired by the right manager, can work very hard. That's aside from any goal scoring or, or any other uh, parts to his game. And he started against MK Dons. He started against Wimbledon. Um, Kieran McKenna said after the MK game, the reason I'm starting him is because he is our fastest striker and I really want us to have a threat uh, when we break quickly. And he works the hardest out of possession. I think he's the most mobile. Basically, I think he's the best at pressing. And of course, these days, tactical managers, they want their strikers to be more than just goal scorers. They, they, they want them to be the whole package. He basically suggested he thought Jackson was the one that suited his style um, best, which kind of raised my eyebrows for sure. Um, I wasn't necessarily expecting Jackson to have such a renaissance at Ipswich, but here we go. Starts, scores after a minute, gets two assists later on. Man of the match. Um, really good piece of management that from Kieran McKenna. So I'm feeling very positive about that at the moment. Whether or not they've got uh, too much to make up remains to be seen, but they're another team in good form. Uh, Cambridge got their first win in four weeks, beating Accrington 2-0. So it's one of those kind of weird ones, George, in at Quest, where half-time, you have a quick whiz through who scored and look at the stats of all the games to see if there's any mad outliers. Shot count, Cambridge 0, Accrington 14. <laughs> Score, nil-nil. Uh, almost all of them had been from set-piece situations, and there was a heavy uh, influence from the wind. But even so, uh, Cambridge having to stand strong and then turning things around in the second half uh, with Wes Houlihan scoring at the end, a, a really nice finish through the legs of the defender. I can't think of a more popular player than Wes Houlihan, genuinely. Like, I can't think of someone more universally popular, maybe N'Golo Kante, but in EFL terms, I cannot think of anyone that everyone loves as much as him. Um, an important win for Cambridge, for sure. Let's talk League Two. We'll start at the top of it, where the top team, Forest Green, lost 1-0. The first time they've lost since the 9th of October. And they lost to Michael Flynn's Walsall. That's fun Incredible. to say, isn't it? That's fun to say. Mike Flynn yeah. back in the saddle. I mean, it's it's in in my view, and um, I know you got to be careful saying this because people don't like it being told that their club making an appointment is a coup. But it's a massive coup, I think, for Warsaw to go and get uh, Michael Flynn, and especially when you consider, you know, the man who they appointed um, under kind of the new regime after Daryl Clark was someone in, in you know Matt, Matt Taylor who hadn't managed before. It, you're basically going from a guy who. You know, had had a great playing career, um, but had no discernible um, track record of, of managing football teams. To a guy who's done probably one of the best jobs in the EFL over the last five or six years. Um, when you're making an appointment like that at the bottom end of League League Two, you know this is a guy who, as far as I think most people assumed, you know his next job was going to be the very worst in League One. Um, it's it's a brilliant bit of bit of business for them to get him in um, and. Uh, you know his whether or not we can credit him that much with the victory here I don't know he was quick to to say possibly not but they were good value for it. I mean this was a, a totally 
different to Walsall's side and uh, Walsall's performance than we've seen um, so far this the season. The score and you, and you check the stats and you're like, I bet this was a real smash and grab because you can't imagine yeah. it being anything else. And then yes. the delight when you realise it, it wasn't at all. They were just easily the better side on the day. Unbelievable. You know, it, I mean, just an amazing um, and quick uh, turnaround of form uh, implemented by Flynn, although he was quick to, to credit other members of staff who, who preceded him in the job. I mean, this is a Forest Green side who are so uh, consistent in terms of their performance levels um, that for Walsall to turn up and do this was was very surprising. Um, and uh, I mean, it's probably not going to have a massive say in, in where either of these teams, well, what they achieve this season because Forest Green are, are going to go up and, and Walsall are, are not going to go down, um, in my opinion. Um, so, but in terms of, of what it can possibly mean for Walsall fans and, you know, to it's going to be much easier for them to um, to go on a bit of a run off the back of this now um, because it's going to get everyone pretty excited at the club straight away. More manager chat. Uh, Oldham beat Bradford 2-0. Firstly, how do you begin to explain the Chez erection? I, I, I can't. I'm glad because I, I, I can't. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's mad. How a guy who, from everything we're told, was a... Uh, just a wholly negative influence to both Wigan and, and and Swindon can go and breathe life into this Oldham side that was so devoid of of life, confidence, quality. Um, you know, he's made Davis Keeler done into the player that, that we saw at times last season. You know, he is seemingly the talisman for this resurrection. Um, but they are just, a, yeah, a difference. They're just a side who believe again, it, it feels. And there's we've seen Vyko Paunovic talk in the last few weeks at Reading about the need to bring the fans back on side and, and maybe the, the best decision to bring Sharon back into Oldham was just doing that, just making Boundary Park a more positive place to play again uh, and getting the whole football club united and, and moving into one direction rather than the, the massive fractures that were, that were between basically every party until he returned. Out of the relegation zone for the first time since late November. Kilo Dunn, you mentioned, has four in three. That was their third clean sheet in five games, 11 points in that time. It is not done yet, but what an unbelievable start. Now, their opponents, Bradford, are in a very different place at the moment. Uh, They sacked Derek Adams last week, not long after you'd said, I'd probably just, you know, see it out, see how it goes, just give it a bit. Uh, He was gone. Um, you have to think that his fairly bullish and incredibly Derek Adams on brand interview from the weekend before had had kind of put the ball in the court of the Bradford uh, decision makers and, and, and asked them to make a brave decision um, when, when he said, if they're going to get a new manager in, they're not going to get a manager as successful as myself in the door. That's obvious to everyone because my record is up there with everyone's in League Two. As you said last week, yeah, it's a strange thing to say. It's also probably um, partially true and you know what? If you're not going to do your own self-promotion, you can't guarantee anyone else is going to do it for you. And that's what Derek Adams was thinking there. But it does mean they are looking for a new manager. And it kind of feels like they've tried everything at this point, George, to, to turn around the Bradford uh, tanker. Uh, since Stuart McCall left uh, almost exactly four years ago, um, we've seen Simon Grayson took 14 league games. Michael Collins was the sort of young, talented coach. He got seven games. David Hopkin came in, 35 games. Gary Bowyer, uh, safe pair of hands, 48 games. Uh, Stuart McCall again, the old flame, 28 games. Had 31 games of Truman and Sellers, uh, the young, the hotshot duo last season who 
took them to the end of the season and then were, were told to, to do one. Um, and then uh, Derek Adams, who has just left. So uh, having tried pretty much everything, what do you think comes next? What would you do if you were Bradford City? I mean, this comes back into what we were talking about a second ago with Derek Adams, where um, what would I do? Well, I, I probably wouldn't have sacked him. Um, when you list those managers you've just spoken about there, such a variation in terms of, of what they've done in the past, where their stock is on, on being appointed, history, experience, and the rest of it. As Adam said, if, if no one can do well at a football club, then it's probably not the fault, all that can be the fault of the manager. Um, Steve Evans is is seemingly the most likely at the moment. Uh, it sounds like, which I guess kind of makes sense. He's someone with a with a proven track record of getting results uh, at this level. Um, quite clearly, the job that he did at, at Gillingham was not good enough, uh, and he will point the finger at the recruitment as he has done. But I'm pretty sure he said that every single player he bought was destined to be the best player in the Premier League at some point. So, um, you know, it doesn't really ring true. I I, I basically don't know. I, I wouldn't appoint Evans. I'd look to. As I've said a million times, I looked to appoint someone um, with a bit of something about them. I thought Flynn would be the obvious candidate, but it seemed like that ship had sailed before it, it could even kind of um, before they could even speak to him. So, I, if I was a Bradford fan, I'd just be pretty nonplussed about about what's going on. Um, you know, I think, in my opinion, they should have just sucked it up with Adams, got to the end of the season, and gone again in the summer. But um, at the same time, I understand why maybe some Bradford fans didn't really want the abrasive men um in charge of their club well the one the one bit of context to give to a potential steve evans appointment and i don't know if this is where the club's going i suspect not because there was a very very high profile incident involving steve evans when he was crawley manager at bradford and a, a massive brawl that took place like not one of those like oh, it's a bit of fisticuffs brawl, like a proper brawl that took place um, some years ago now. So that's always kind of lingered, I think, when it comes to Bradford and Steve Evans, not to mention he's a former Leeds United manager. Um, I'd be very surprised if the club make that appointment. I'm looking right now at the Bantam Talk forum where there's a thread called, will you stop attending matches if Steve Evans is appointed manager at City? Um, 54% saying they'll still go. 46% saying they would no longer attend matches. Wow. Okay. Stevenage nil, Bristol Rovers four. I'm excited about this, George, I must admit. And not only it was my nap on the betting show and I was pleased to get that up, but also it kind of feels like in the summer, gas fans were quite excited. Well, they were keen to be excited after such a disappointing campaign in League One. They did do a lot of transfer business early on and there were lots of talks of them winning the window. And we didn't really buy it particularly. We, we certainly weren't as quick to get excited about them this season. And for the first half of the season, we probably felt like we'd been justified with that because they'd been poor. But now the gas fans are excited again, and I'm right there with them. I'm right there with them. I watched them play in midweek. Uh, they put away a very tired Sutton United side. Uh, but I liked what I saw, particularly the three behind the striker, uh, Anderson, Anderson and Nichols, uh, Nicholson. That's two players called Anderson, if you're interested, Elliot and, and Harry. I uh, mentioned them all on the betting show. And then Nicholson set up Finley for the first goal. Uh, Nicholson set up Elliot Anderson for the second goal. And then Elliot Anderson set up Harry Anderson for the third goal. They've also got a player called Anderton just to finish things off. Um, I'm really excited. Elliot Anderson. Uh, by the way, on loan from Newcastle, looks absolute class. You know, I've said this so many times, but sometimes you're watching the League Two highlights on Quest and there's just a flurry of goals and chances and bad bits of play and good bits of play. And occasionally someone does something and you're like, oh, okay, that, that looks like you've been 
transplanted from like the championship into League Two. That just looks a little bit too good. And that's basically how I felt when I watched Elliot Anderson's bits on Saturday. So a 4-0 win at Stevenage, beating their former manager Paul Tisdale would have been very sweet for some gas fans. And they're on they're on the march. Uh, I need to pull the League Two table up right now to decide how excited I'm getting. 11th place, five points off the playoffs, 15 games to go. Pretty excited. Pretty excited. <laughs> um, Northampton, three, Colchester, nil. Winning without fuss, George Ellick. That might as well... If they make a DVD of the Cobblers promotion season 21-22, if that's what ends up happening, winning without a fuss, that'll be the title. And you can have that one for free. <laughs> yeah, um, they were solid again set piece goal from Horsfall I mean it, it, I just it completely blows my mind how Horsfall and Guthrie are their two um, kind of main main goal, goal threats uh, Horsfall getting the first Guthrie going close for the second but then some quality from open play as well afterwards um, it, this was as cosy as you like and it does feel basically when, when Northampton play poorly they don't concede any goals and when they play well they don't concede any goals and they score goals themselves and that that, that is a pretty good way to um to pick up points in this league they are rock solid um and yeah and, and it's hard to kind of i reckon you can kind of make a case against a few of these sides looking to, to finish in second and third i think with with cobblers i've said before is it sustainable to keep relying on 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 those two um for their set piece goals well i mean maybe it is because it is it is consistent it's like vanilla ice cream the Northampton style and the way that they win games. It's like, it's nice. It's not unbelievable, but it's good enough. It's one of the most popular desserts in the world. You don't sniff at it. But then on Saturday against Colu, they put some, they put some hundreds of thousands on it. They put some, some toffee sauce on that with two open play goals to follow it up. Hoskins' was, was the best of the lot. Maguire. Maguire. It's a hard word to say. Maguire on loan from, uh, from Blackburn. <laughs> Uh, carrying it forward from centre-back and then Hoskins curling in. 16th clean sheet of the season. Sensational stuff. George, who was always going to be the difference maker in Carlisle against Swindon? Um, McCurdy. Yes, it was going to be him, I like, wasn't I liked it? Every time he got on the ball for both his goal and his two assists, you heard boos. That they almost seemed to kind of just move into boos at Carlisle. The players, kind of like the Carlisle fans, booing McCurdy, conceding a goal. They mean like, oh, we'll just we'll just boo because we're losing at home to Swindon. Boo McCurdy, boo the team. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's pretty bad vibes at Carlisle at the moment. Just to to linger on, and sorry, Carlisle fans, I know it's it's horrible to listen to, but um, he is box office. He's the sort of player that that we can't help but talk about. Um, sometimes, well, mostly for better, sometimes for worse. Uh, former Carlisle player, just to give the full context here, from what two seasons ago. Um, actually played pretty well for Carlisle, uh, scored a few goals, set up a few goals, did quite well for them on the pitch. But it's fair to say him and the fans did not get on, um, in particular the fact that he seemed, I think, pretty keen to get out of Carlisle as soon as the matches finish, get down to London so he could go and watch Chelsea and then post about Chelsea on uh, on his Instagram story. I've, I've never seen, I don't think I've seen a player in the EFL that's as big a fan of another club, as openly a fan and a match-going fan of another professional football club as Harry McCurdy is as a Chelsea fan. It's quite remarkable. He's in basically every away end. You see little pictures pop up on Twitter of him, a uh, little rascal in the Chelsea away end. You can tell he enjoyed his goal and his assists. Uh, he celebrated, gave it big guns in front of three different stands at Carlisle. Really made sure he left his mark. But also for Swindon, Louis Barry's first senior goal. 
and I dare say his first of quite a lot of se- uh, sorry his first senior league goal obviously scored that famous FA Cup goal against Liverpool last season mm. didn't he but um, yeah really exciting to see him get a run of games um, obviously didn't have an easy first loan at Ipswich last season but someone whose youth career includes Barcelona uh, on his CV and Aston Villa is still such a young player I think we can assume that there's a lot about him. I know the Swindon fans have been impressed with his uh, his attacking threat the last few games and he got a nice goal as well. And I'm sure the first of many senior league goals for Louis Barry. As for Carlisle, they dropped into the bottom two here, uh, leapfrogged by Oldham. Fans have already had enough of Keith, Keith Millen, but the main finger pointing is at director of football David Holdsworth, who seems to have very little accountability for his actions. And I guess by his actions, I mean the performance of the football side of Carlisle United Football Club, which he's been in charge of for the last few years. Um, the lack of clarity over his decision-making, the suggestion that, that he's been, you know, appointing the wrong people, mainly out of his contacts book, rather than necessarily the, the, the ones who could have been appointed on merit. Um, it's a miserable time, and, and they now look like the team who might drop into non-league. I know there's a lot of fans who might feel that they're the sort of club that might get a bit stuck if they do get relegated to non-league so it's a hugely important next three months and Scunny Rochdale was pretty straightforward here uh, Scunthorpe took the lead through a set piece in the first half Rochdale were playing poorly but they are the better side and they turned it around Robbie Stockdale making decisive changes at half time bringing Alex Newby on um, I saw someone call him the Rochdale Ronaldo on Twitter on Saturday which is so bad as to, as to <laughs> I'm afraid spell the end of all footballer nicknames they're all uh. banned now because someone called Alex Newby the Rochdale Ronaldo. But he was the difference maker. Um, Switched to 3-4-3 and uh, they turned things around. Max Taylor, I enjoyed a centre-back scoring from open play, as I mentioned the other day, and he trotted up as Rochdale had the ball and smashed home the winning goal. 2-1, Rochdale's first win of 2022. What an enjoyable pod, George. Yes. Not as stormy as I feared. (laughs) Yeah. They do call me... G Eunice. G Eunice, nice. Yeah. Just nice. an example of some of the fun we might have live at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 19th of May 2022. Could I ask you to record a, 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 a plea for the listeners of the podcast to, to make sure that we shift some tickets today? Is it not a bit early to beg? I don't know. Look, mate, I spoke to our marketing manager and and the marketing manager said, George's voice carries more weight than yours. We think he's the one to be the go-to guy to sell tickets. So that's all I'm asking. That makes sense, given that I'm the marketing manager. I would say that. Um, Please, please, please buy a ticket to Not The Top 20 Live at the Leicester Square Theatre, London, on Thursday, the 19th of May, two days before the the League One playoff final, the week before Championship and League Two. It's 7 p.m. start. We'll be out in time to either go back across the country to wherever you come from, wherever you live, so you can get home in time or to a pub nearby to watch hopefully whatever game is on that afternoon. We're going to have, I mean, we are very excited to do it. It's something we want to do more of. Um, And there's going to be some exciting special guests and other things that we'll announce in due course. But please come and join us for one evening of Not The Top 20 Live, Leicester Square Theatre, Thursday, 19th of May, 2022. Don't feel like you have to get the train home afterwards if you do live elsewhere in the country because a lot of lot of good cheap hotel options uh, across town and it's just going to be a sensational night 
And I really think people should make a night of it. And I really think people should get a gang together and come along. And I really hope that listeners of the pod are keen to join us because otherwise we'll be talking into an empty theatre and that would not be fun for anyone. Mm. Uh, There you go. Uh, Not the Top 20 Live, 19th of May, 2022, Leicester Square Theatre. See you there. Links in bio, links in description, links on Twitter. If you can't find a link to buy the tickets, A, sorry, but you're an idiot. B, message message us on Twitter and I'll sort that out for you. Go well, everyone. We'll talk again on Thursday.